You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. It's the 28th January 2024. I'm joined by my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Ibstock, Ocado, Curry's, Safe Store, AJ Bell, and our US company of the week is Visa. John, do you want to start with the show's favourite brickmaker? Yes, so it's the FTSE 250 brickmaker Ibstock. It is the largest in the UK. They had a full year trading statement out last week, with the group expecting full year revenue to fall by 21% to around £405 million as market conditions remain subdued in the final quarter. Underlying cash profit, EBITDA, is expected to be in line with previous group expectations, which the market forecasts suggests mean a decline of around 23% to £107 million. Net debt rose from £46 million to £101 million at the year end. Ibstock expects residential construction markets to remain subdued in the near term. As a result, one of its brick factories has been permanently closed, reducing the total, total group headcount. In terms of valuation, Ibstock had a market cap of £610 million and forward price to earnings ratio of 14.8, an average of 12.3 since it went public again in 2015. It has a prospective dividend yield of 4.7%. I thought these results were broadly what might be expected given the inflationary pressures, the energy price rises that we've seen, and the higher interest rates depressing the housing market in the UK. But as the UK's largest brick maker and the expense of importing bricks, and also the the poor quality of the imported bricks that come from abroad, and the structural imbalance in the housing demand in the UK, I would back Ipsoc in the longer term. You could, you know, question how much growth it can deliver. But I think it's, I think it's, I, I'm more, I think I'd be more optimistic than the market is about it, particularly as with, you know, this talk about whether interest rates have peaked and all major political parties being committed to house building. I think those things are, are really going to be the driver from Ibstock. Yeah. Would I buy shares? Probably not, but I think you could do a lot worse. And I wouldn't say it's especially expensive, particularly if things are are going to pick up in the next couple of years. Sam, what are your thoughts on this trading statement from Ibstock? It's not great, but I don't think there's any surprises in there. We've done a few house builders recently. They're slowing down. So it, you know, that is where a lot of the bricks are going. So it's not really surprising. I don't really have an issue with the debt rising. I know it looks a bit scary at first, 46 million up to 101. But when you compare that to the cash properties of 107, it would have to really increase before that became a concern. I know you mentioned like the long-term tailwinds that it potentially have, similar to the house builders. With that in mind, I do question why they've permanently closed the factory rather than just yeah. got rid of all the yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, I, 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 I thought the same, but maybe... Maybe they're more pessimistic as well. Maybe they do know more than we do. Yeah, and they have. They will have also been through 2008, so they might yeah. be quite cautious. And it, it might be that actually it's... I think the valuation is quite high. The yield is good at 4.7, but I think it used to actually be quite a bit higher. I think we've seen it in like, the, you know, 5 6%. Similar to the house builders, though, the yield will drop with profits, I guess. But 
I just think at a forward P of 14.8, it's hard because it's a cyclical. So, I mean, we've, I think we've covered it in the past, like seven or eight times earnings, but those were, you know, when basically the market was pricing in the fact that these probably were the peak earnings. But mm. I just think when it's dropping off like this, I just, I just don't know if a 14x multiple is a little bit pricey. And I, I think compared to some of the house builders we're looking at, which do generally seem to trade at quite similar valuations, the house builders are cheaper. I know they might be more exposed, like a, a drop-off in the housing market compared to Ubstock, but I, I've always liked it as an alternative to the house builders. I, I do think it's a well-run company. It's, it's a very easy business to understand, which I like. But I just think based on the current valuation, there's, you know, there's three or four house builders I would probably rather buy if I wanted exposure to that industry before yeah. I bought Ipstock at the current prices. I mean, it is interesting because from a share price point of view, Ipstock over the last year is down about 7%. And if we take Taylor Wimpy as an example, that's up about 25% over the year. What do you make of that? Did they have more of a drop-off, though, in like the 12 months before that? So let me just have a look. That's a good question. So over two years, Taylor Wimpy is broadly flat. Yeah, see, so Ipstock's down 21% over two years. Yeah. So that that's that might be why, but yeah, it's just I'd probably there's you know I'd rather have sort of like Taylor Wimpy or Redrow I think before I went for Ibstock, but I I do like it, but I just think at the minute I would have some slight I just well not even concerns over the valuation, it's more that I just think you can get better bang for your buck and get a pretty similar business with some of the house builders. Fine, okay. And for reference, I do own Redrow and so quite happy with it. Not trading was, at Ribstock then. I'm not. But it was, you know, the last couple of years have been difficult in terms of if you're watching the share price, but I, ge- I generally haven't been. <laughs> Do we move okay. on to Ocado? Yeah, okay. How's it doing now? So they've come out with a trading statement for Q4 and the full year. This trading statement does only cover Ocado retail. It doesn't, co- it doesn't yeah. cover the, yeah, the Ocado solutions part of the business. Yeah. So for... Q4, they've said that Q4 retail revenue was 609.4 million, which was up 10.9% versus the same quarter last year, and a fourth consecutive period of quarter on quarter growth, and a significant increase versus the 7.2% reported in Q3. Volumes grew consistently over the period, up 4.8% year on year. Average orders per week were up 6.3% to 407,000. Average customers reached 998,000, which was up 5.9% year on year. Average basket value is up 3.8%, while basket size remained broadly stable at 44 items per order. Average sales price increased 5.4% year over year, again lower than market inflation, reflecting Ocado's continued focus on improving pricing relative to the market. I would describe that as a lack of pricing power, but that's an interesting spin <laughs> from management. <laughs> and for the full year, full year revenue grew 7% versus last year to 2.35 billion. Ocado volumes were down 0.9%, given the drag in the first half due to unwinding from the pandemic and the cost of living crisis. Average orders per week of 393,000 grew 4% year on year, reflecting the increase in average customers. Average basket value was up 2.7%, while basket size reduced 4.5%. Average sales price increased 9.9% year on year. And they've said they, re- they returned to positive EBITDA for the full year. And for Christmas trading, they said they delivered another record Christmas and hit their highest ever level of sales over the peak Christmas trading period. 
demand was high and they sold over seven over 90 of peak christmas slots released 22nd to 24th december by mid-october between december 20th and 24th sales overall increased seven percent and each were up three percent including a record day for each is number which is a number of items delivered on the 23rd of december in terms of the valuation there are no earnings it trades at a price forward price sales of 1.67 and that compares to a 10-year average of 2.86 there is no dividend and the shares are down just under 80% in the last three years. And I think it was briefly more valuable than Tesco, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Very briefly. I think this trading statement's all right, but it doesn't include the solutions, which is probably the most exciting part of the business. And if, if the business is to have a viable future, I think it would be in solutions. Ocado Group only owns 50% of Ocado Retail. The other half is owned by M&S. If I was M&S, given how much they've paid for that. These growth figures are not fantastic. I think, I'll just check the financials for the previous years, but I think it's following a drop-off last year anyway. Oh, wait, no, it's not. It's been slight growth. But, yes, it's, I just, these these figures aren't fantastic. They're not anywhere near the figures that they, sh- they should be putting up for the amount they've paid. And I just think, I don't really see what they're actually offering that none of the other big supermarkets delivery is able to offer as well there's no there's not really anything that sets them apart i know they've got the underlying technology but in terms of the product you're paying for it is basically the same so why would you switch from tesco delivery to ocado i I just i just don't see why you you know there's not there's nothing really that's distinguishable about it and the ocado solutions is really interesting as i mentioned before but I just find this business impossible to value. I think if Ocado Retail was going to justify the amount M&S paid for it, it would have to be putting up much better figures than this. And these figures as well, they're def- I think they're worse than Tesco's figures. So mm. full year, probably worse than Sainsbury's as well. Or maybe, I can't remember Sainsbury's. But it's, it's broadly in line, but they're not, they're not taking significant market share which given the amount of pet that M&S paid, they did need to do. I think from Ocado's point of view, probably selling 50% of the retail business to M&S <laughs> could be quite, well, it was quite a smart move given the valuation they got. If that money is able to be pumped into the solutions business and that pays off, it, it could be quite a smart move. But the solutions business is, I think, the most exciting part. And the problem is I've just got no, no idea how to value that. So an interesting mm. business, quite quite an underwhelming, I think, retail statement but we have gotten used to those from that side of the business john what are your thoughts yeah no similarly and i think also one point of making out is that tesco's has the largest grocery delivery in the country but it doesn't make a huge amount of money from it in fact it it sort of barely breaks even with it and obviously a car with just focusing on the retail part of a cardo so I think that's an area of the business they're always going to struggle with. And like you say, with benefit of hindsight, it was actually probably quite a, a shrewd move by Ocado to, to get the price that they did for selling half the retail business. It's interesting when it comes to the solutions. And I know the share price did have a little bit of a spike um, at one point last year when there was a rumour that Amazon were coming in for the solutions part of the business. It's fascinating to sort of try and watch an explanation, but to value it, at the solutions part, that is, I think is very difficult. And it's not something I'd feel 
at all competent in doing. But I mean, perhaps, perhaps there is value in it, but it, all, it would all hinge on that solutions, which if you don't understand, it's a difficult task, isn't it? It is, yeah. Or an impossible task. Yeah, well, if you compare that to understanding Ipstock, like, <laughs> yes. like I say, what, bricks like I said, and mortar. Exactly. One is significantly e- an easier business to understand than yeah. the other. Uh, but Ocado yeah. is an interesting business to follow. Should we move on to another business that's quite easy to understand? Yeah, no, absolutely. So moving on to Curry's, it's the electronics retailer. They had their trading statement out for the third quarter last week with Curry's like-for-like revenue falling 3% over the 10 weeks to the 6th of January with sales declining across all regions. In the UK and Ireland, there was strong growth in all services, including the record credit adoption, which helped boost margins. And in the Nordic regions, positive domestic appliance sales were offset by weaker trends in televisions. The sale of the Greek business is expected to complete by the end of April this year and should bring in net cash of around £156 million. And the group plans to use some of that to pay down debt, which was £97 million last year. Full year pre-tax profits are expected to land at between 105 and 115 million pounds, which is ahead of market expectations. And as I said, debt expected to fall too. Shares were up about 6% following this statement. And currently the group has a market cap of 561 million pounds and trades at five and a half times forward earnings. I mean, I thought these results were positive in a sense, upgrade to the full year guidance. However, I think the long term is very, very tough. I think competing in something that's so commoditized like consumer electronics and when you've got in the short term pressure on discretionary spending, it's, it's really, really tough. And I can't see Curry's you know, surviving or winning in the longer term. So whilst there are, you know, some positive things here and it's getting cash from the sale of the Greek business, yeah, long, long, long term, I just don't see it with Curry's. I thought these results were quite positive. We covered it fairly recently with, I think, the the, the last six-month results. or maybe might have even been the full-year results. But whatever the last results were, I think we covered back in about December. And they, they were struggling but I, we did think that management were doing a lot of the right things. And I think they still are. I think given that, I, th- I think that I don't think these results are terrible. I think the light flight revenue fall of 3% is disappointing, but in the Nordic reasons, I, I think they are just really struggling at the minute. I think the sale of the Greek business is the right move and using that to pay off debt. The debt's, net debt is expected to fall from the previous year anyway. Pre-tax profits are pretty decent. I know they're down 9 million from last year, but given the tough year they've had, it's not terrible. It's, I, I think management are doing the best they can with this business. The, the problem is the business. <laughs> um, I think it's like the Buffett quote, isn't it? When you have like above average management and a below average business, mm. it's the business that will win out in the end. But I, I think management are doing a decent job. It's pretty cheap. It's got a decent dividend, which doesn't look like it's in danger, I don't think, in the near future. But long term, I'm not sure what the attraction is, apart from it being so cheap. But I do think management are doing a good job and they're not doing a lot of the things that management usually do that can annoy us. So I think credit to management where it's due. But yeah, not not great results. But I think given the circumstances and what the last set of results were, I think I think it is a, 
I think it is an improvement and they are doing well. Yeah. Okay, then. On to Safe Store. Yes, so I don't think we've covered this one for a while. So probably a year or two since we last covered it. So it's the UK's largest, what's it called, like storage company. You know, where you go and you, you hide the little site and you've got your own little room or whatever and you go and just store your stuff there. So they have come out with their full year results and group revenue for the year was up 5.5%. And that's 4.8% in constant exchange rates. Like for light revenue growth in constant exchange rates was up 1.7%. Underlying EBITDA was up 4.5% in constant exchange rates, which combined with a reduced gain on investment properties of 93.8 million, which resulted in statutory operating profit of 230.4 million. And that's down from 514.5 million a year ago. However, as mentioned, that drop is mainly because the investment properties have not gone as much up as much last year as they did the previous year. So it's not really reflective on how the actual trade is doing. They've had strong cost control with like for like costs increasing 0.3% on a constant exchange rate basis. And I, I suppose it's the kind of business they're operating in, but I, I mean, there's not many businesses that have only a cost go up 0.3% in the last year. So <laughs> you have to give them some credit for that. Adjusted diluted earnings per share was up 0.8%. And there was a 1% increase in the dividend. They have new stores or acquisitions, adding 500,000 square feet of new MLA, which is maximum lettable area across 13 projects in the, in the financial year, with five in the UK, six in Spain, and two in the Netherlands. Total group development and extension pipeline increased to 30 projects and 1.5 million square feet. They purchased the freehold interest of two stores in Barcelona and West Birmingham. Lease extensions completed for four stores in Edinburgh, London Charlton, London Slough and Burnley. And that's successful integration of the Benelux acquisition. And they've had, an, they've had entry into the German market this year via a new joint venture with Carlisle, which has acquired the seven store my storage business with 326,000 square feet of what's it, maximum letable area. In terms of the balance sheet, they've had a 9.3% increase in the property valuation, which includes investment properties under construction, a 73% of debt at fixed rate and in, fixed interest rates with tenors from 2024 to 2033. The group loan to value ratio is at 25.4% calculated on net debt. I suspect that's helped by the amount of properties have increased by the last few yeah. as well. And the interest cover ratio is a very healthy 6.7x, which is down from 10.4x last year. In terms of the valuation, as well in the last five years, in terms of the results, the revenues, it had a bit of a jump, it looks like, just after the COVID year, which isn't that surprising because it's exactly the kind of business you would expect to benefit from that. But uh, 2019 revenue was 150 million then up to 162, then 186, then it jumps to 212, and then 224 in the year to 31, October 23. <laughs> in terms of the operating profit, that is 163 million, then 212, then 417, then 514, and then down to 230, although it is quite distorted because that does include the increase in the value of the properties going through the P&L. So in terms of the valuation... The business trades at a P ratio of 17.46 and it has a yield of 3.64%. 
and it trades at a market cap of 1.8 billion. I'll just see what the net assets are. It says it's got net, net assets of 1.9 billion. I, I do quite like this. I probably like it more than last. Oh, it's actually um, it's down 33% over two years as well, but up 48% over five years mm. and, and up 26% in the last three months. It's moved around quite a bit, but I, I quite like this. I think 17.46 times earnings isn't cheap mm. for a business that's growing 5% a year. But it's got a lot of long-term tailwinds. And I think maybe something that I possibly hadn't appreciated as much last time is how much of those tailwinds are actually going to come rather in the form of the, the, the rental business, but actually in the increased value of the investment properties. Mm. And the yield's pretty decent as well. So yeah, and I know you might not actually ever unlock that a lot of that value in the increase of the property. I suppose you could in theory remortgage it and then go and get some more, but I think 17 times earnings for this business, although it's growing 5% a year, I think given how valuable all those properties are, the long-term tailwind it's, wind it's got, it's the number one player. I actually think at 17 times earnings, it's quite attractive. And I don't know if I thought that last time. I don't think I'd really... I think it's because we've seen a, you know, a few years of it now where the properties are going up a decent amount every year. Yeah, I, I just... I think it's possibly better value than I first thought. And I do quite like the look of this now. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I'd buy it, but it's possibly good enough for the watch list. And I'd possibly like to maybe try and cover it a bit more regularly because it's it's yeah. not one that I've been as, you know, I've not been, it's not been like, a, you know, it's not like when Unilever comes out and it's like, it's getting covered. And I think, I think maybe it should be actually, because I think I've maybe not appreciated it as much as I should have done. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, similarly, I think, it's maybe coming to terms with that valuation because for the type of stock it is, you think that that's quite pricey. I guess the other big players that, again, we haven't covered recently are Segro. That's, I think, the biggest. And there's also Big Yellow and Tritax. I think they're the, the, the others, but they're quite a bit smaller. But Segro is it's, not pure storage, is it? It's not pure storage, no. No, you're right. I mean, they're, they're, I suppose it's same, well, well, would you say same sector? I can't remember Segro. I just, I've stopped looking at it since we took it out of the fantasy portfolio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I think it did, I think, it, I think it, well, I think it did quite well, but it was kind of on that, you know, on, on the wave of, sort of immediately post-Covid. Oh, actually, yeah, it's come I, down a bit since we. I think it might have come down since we took it out. Yeah, no, I th that's what I mean. I think, I think, I think that was um, pro probably timed quite well, but obviously not not by our skill, more just uh, pure pure fortune. But yeah, I'm probably sitting on the fence a little bit. I do like its defensive qualities, and again, the fact that it's kind of on the back of that sort of structural growth trend. I think watch list for me. Yeah, I'm the same. I think I'd like to look at it a bit more regularly. I think I'd been too focused on the PL. I don't think I'd really yeah. paid enough attention to what was going on on the balance sheet. Yeah. So I think I would be keen to cover that again when the next set of results are out, actually. No, fair enough. Shall we move on to AJ Bell? Yes. Okay. So AJ Bell, we cover it uh, along with Hargreaves Lansdowne. It's the UK's second biggest listed DIY investment platform after Hargreaves Lansdowne and it had a Q1 trading statement out with 
if we break it down first in terms of the platform business, uh, customers increased by 8,000 to close up at 484,000, which is a 12% rise in the last year and 2% in the last quarter. Total advised customers stood at 161,000, which was up 8% in the last year and 1% in the last quarter. And the total direct consumer customers was 323,000, which was up 13% in the last year and 2% in the last quarter. They had a record level of assets under administration, which came in at £76.2 billion, which is up 15% in the last year and 7% in the last quarter. And they also had a significant year-on-year increase in gross and net inflows on the platform. Gross inflows in the quarter of £2.7 billion, and that compares with just £1.9 billion in 2023. And net inflows of the quarter of £1.3 billion, which compared with 2023 was only £0.8 billion. In terms of the AJ Bell Investments business, assets under management were 5.2 billion, which was up 53% in the last year and 11% in the last quarter. Net inflows in the quarter came in at 0.4 billion, which was in line with the prior year. Michael Summerskill, the group's chief executive officer, came out and said, I'm delighted to report an excellent start to the financial year with the first quarter to net inflows across the platform being higher than in any individual quarter of 2023. Some of the macroeconomic headwinds experienced throughout 2023 showed signs of improving in the quarter, driving global equity markets higher and easing some of the pressure on household finances. The consistently strong growth of our investment business illustrates the attractiveness of our low-cost, simple products. As we look ahead, our platform will continue to appeal to both current and potential customers and advisors. We continue to invest in enhancing our positions with a strong focus on ease of use, whilst also investing in our pricing to ensure that we deliver great value to our customers. Following the FCA's recent clarification of expectations concerning interest paid on cash balances held on investment platforms, we announced changes to the interest rates paid on cash balances, whilst also lowering a number of our charges. These changes will benefit our customers to the tune of £14 million a year, reflecting our long-standing philosophy of sharing our economies of scale as we grow, an approach that is very much aligned with the consumer duty. Our dual-channel model has proven its resilience during periods of high inflation over the last 18 months, delivering consistent consumer growth and net inflows. Whilst this is a strong start to the year and provides good momentum as we go ahead to the busy tax year end period. In terms of valuation, AJ Bell has a market cap of £1.34 billion and it trades at just under 20 times earnings. And it has a prospective dividend yield of 3.3%. I thought these results were very good. We've covered AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne many times in the past. Of course, quite a lot of this is, is flattered by the rally that we've had and that the S&P 500 is now trading at all-time highs. But still, I, I, think, I think this is a good, a good trading statement from AJ Bell. It's not a cheap stock to own. And I think for both AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne, the big worry for me is that there are these pressures on prices. It's very, very commoditized, And I don't think that bodes well for AJ Bell in the future. And I don't think the margins are going to be as chunky as they once were. So whilst it's a good set of results, I don't think it's a stock for me still. 
Sam, what are your thoughts as a Hargreaves shareholder? Yeah, I think over the last few years, I've come to accept your argument that I think it is just a commoditized product. The, the, the movements in the pricing are not great from a business point of view. It's great as a consumer, but they seem to be offering more and more for less and less money. A lot of you know the increased profits have come from the interest rates going up, kind of similar to like what you see from a bank. In fairness to AJ Bell, they are growing customers at a higher rate than Hargreaves, so they are taking market share off them, but it is off a much, much smaller base. 19 times earnings, I probably wouldn't pay it. I think it's quite a cyclical stock, and the results will, as you've mentioned, rise and fall with the stock market. I know I do own Hargreaves, and a lot of these arguments apply to Hargreaves as well, but it's, it is a stock I am just quite close to selling now. The only reason mm. I'm holding it is just because it is, it's fallen. I mean, it's not fallen low, but as it's fallen about 50%. But the earnings have done much better in that time on the interest rates rising. And it does actually represent pretty decent value now. AJ Bell's more expensive, but Hargreaves is about 11 times earnings, I think, with like mm. a 5% dividend yield, which is probably not terrible enough for me to actually justify selling it because the results are actually pretty good. It's, it's just, I think, that it, it's, it is... A commoditized industry and i think the last few years have shown that unfortunately i think that the same applies to aj bell and although they are growing the customers quicker i, I still just think 19 times earnings is quite a bit when you can have hargreaves which is very very similar for such a lower price that being said if i was if i was starting my portfolio from scratch today i don't think i would buy either of them <laughs> mm. which maybe is an indication that i should actually just sell hargreaves at some point but for now i'm just going to continue to hold it and complain about it i think <laughs> don't really have much more to add fine okay then on to possibly the well i think probably the highest quality business then this week visa i think that's a fair comment yeah <laughs> visa has come out with their q1 results and Net revenue rose by 9% to $8.6 billion in the first quarter, ignoring, and all these figures will be in dollars, ignoring the effect of exchange rates. Underlying net income grew at a slightly slower pace to $4.9 billion due to a rise in the tax rate. There was an increase of 8.4% in its payments volume. Almost half of that volume originated in the United States. Their growth equaled 5.3%, but this pace declined to 4% in the first 21 days of the second quarter due to severe weather conditions. Cross-border total volumes were up by 16%, and this momentum has continued into the second quarter so far. Visa anticipates low double-digit growth in net revenues over 2024, with performance to be weighted towards the second half. Free cash flow came to $3.3 billion, whilst net debt has risen by 22% to $15.1 billion by the end of the year. There were 4.4 billion in share repurchases and buybacks over the period. So they're borrowing money to repurchase shares. The, the shares fell 2.8% in after hours trading on the announcement of the results. It's worth noting that Visa isn't a credit card company and it doesn't lend consumers money or run accounts. So it's not actually liable for money if a customer defaults. Instead, they just charge banks for transferring funds, which gives them a bit more protection in the face of an economic downturn. And 50% of their transaction volumes are US-based, which I didn't realize. In terms of valuation, the business trades at a forward PE of 26.5, and that compares with a 10-year average of 26.8. Prospective yield is 0.8%, and the 10-year average prospective yield is 0.7%. 
I think given the size of the company, these are very, very good results. But for 26 and a half times earnings, I would expect it to be growing at more than 9% a year. I appreciate you are paying partly for the quality of this business, but at some point it has to justify the price. And I'm just not sure where that... I'm not sure you get a market beating return holding this stock long term. I, I could be wrong, but I, I just think how much are the earnings going to? It's pretty. It's already pretty massive. Maybe it can get bigger, but it seems pretty saturated. Although, if only half, if half of the revenue, if all, half of transaction volume still comes from the US, maybe there is more of an opportunity there than you'd have thought. I do question why management as well are borrowing money to buy back stock at twenty six and a half times earnings. Mm-hmm which I'm not a fan of. I just question that decision too. So fantastic business, really, really high quality business. Definitely a business that I would be interested in owning, but not at 26 and a half times earnings. That really, for me, is just sort of the end of the discussion. (laughs) What about you, John? No, I mean, it's similar and it's uh, similar with MasterCard as well. I think they're both fantastic companies and I'd love to own them, but they are always pricey. I think MasterCard was one that was on my watch list just before COVID in 2020. And then when it fell, I was very close to pulling the trigger and I didn't. And I sort of wish I had. But even then, you know, it was just as pricey. And yeah, it's very difficult. I, as Sam knows, I do invest passively. And I'm sure with the market cap that it has, I've probably got a fairly significant chunk just in the global index in Visa. And the same with some of these other very pricey American stocks that are, I guess, mega caps. But as a, you know, if I'm actively investing, I, I, I struggle. So of these six businesses we've covered today, then, Ibstock, Ocado, Curry's, Safestore, AJ Bell and Visa, at the current valuations, which one do you <laughs> like the most and which one do you like the least? I would... Go for probably go for Ibstock actually at current valuations. I'm more bullish on the UK property market, so I think I think Ibstock would be my first choice. What would I pick last? Be between Ocado and Curries. Maybe Curries. I think I, I don't like a lot of what Ocado does. However, if you were to be a bit speculative on it, you could say, well you may get an Amazon or somebody coming along for the solution side of the business. Whereas Curry's, I just don't see it as having a, a, you know, a, a long-term future, but arguably is in a, you know, a, a slightly better state currently. I think my top pick would probably be safe store in terms of what I like the most. I think it's a bit pricey, but I think you, you do potentially make that up on the balance sheet anyway. But that is the big caveat that I'd have to take another look at it and I certainly wouldn't be buying it without doing more digging for me like the least would be a cardo it's just i don't like the retail side and i don't understand the solution <laughs> yeah. so it, it that makes the choice for me i think with curries i might not like the business but at least i understand it i think management mm-hmm. are doing a decent job so even if in the long term the future is not great if you're getting a five percent yield and you're getting it at five times earnings you've probably got a decent chance of getting your money back as long as there's not like a significant drop off in the next few years. Mm. Whereas with Ocado, I just, I just don't know how to value it. So I don't really, yes, Amazon could come along and buy it, but equally it could run out of cash in two or three years and do an equity raise and just dilute you. So yes. So that would be my choice. Fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you again for listening and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. 
Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.